Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Support for the Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn. Cole Hahn's shoes, bags, and outerwear go with you while you work your way to extraordinary. More at colehahn.com. There is a rich tradition in literature of the apocalyptic novel. As Alam and Lethem touch on, the urgency of this tradition allows writers to explore what really matters to their characters and ask what we will keep and what we will forget when push comes to shove. The scope of these works ranges from, as Lethem says, widescreen narratives of entire societies being transformed to more intimate stories of how individuals, relationships, and families are shaped by these tragedies. The latter is the primary preoccupation of both these writers in their most recent novels. In Ruman Alam's Leave the World Behind, which was a finalist for the National Book Award, a blackout on the eastern seaboard forces two families together in an isolated rural house, cut off from the outside world. And in award-winning author Jonathan Lethem's The Arrest, two siblings find themselves in a world where most of what we take for granted, cars, computers, airplanes, have quit working, and their lives are further upended by a man with a nuclear-powered supercar. Here's Alam. Jonathan, it's so good to see you yes, on screen. Yes, what a fun thing. You and I talked before this, before we started broadcasting, and we decided that we were going to hijack this event because there's no moderator. So we were going to make the rules, and we decided that we were not going to read. So we're not going to be reading from our work tonight. And we also agreed that um, rather than each one of us giving the same stump speech about our book that we always give, that I would give the stump speech about the arrest and you would give the stump speech about leave the world behind. Um, so I'm going to take a crack at it uh, right now. So okay. you go first. Um, the arrest, as you just heard Jonathan Latham's 12th novel, which is, let's just reflect on that for a minute. Um, the, the arrest of the title describes a moment of global disruption in which technology ceases to work, precipitating what might be an apocalypse and what might be a liberation, a transition to an entirely new way of life. As we see in the arrest, life continues in North America. And the way that it continues is sort of the ideal for yuppies like me, which is organic farms and sort of a back to the land ethos. In the arrest, we meet this figure who is known as the journeyman. And we are gradually understand that his backstory was in Hollywood of all places. And someone is arriving to see the journeyman and he's coming in a vehicle that you see depicted on the cover very fancifully, um, really caught the attention of both of my children. Um, he has driven this nuclear powered vehicle across the country to confront the journeyman and his sister. It's a book about what endures when our way of life changes? And I think that the answer is that what endures is art 
itself, but we will talk about that later. So that's my, that is my spiel. That is my stump speech for the arrest. I, I hope that was so okay. so fun to hear you do that job for me, Ramon. And, and I, <laughs> I, I, I like it a lot. And it, it anticipates all kinds of things that we'll, we'll talk about. I bet that that's going to happen in, in my attempt to talk about yours here as well. So this is Leave the World Behind. So this is an amazingly um, page-turning marvel of a book because it's very concentrated in time and space. It has the, the, the unities, right, that the uh, Greek uh, theater exalted of time and space. A couple and their children leave Manhattan for what is meant to be a restorative and gracious uh, vacation at an Airbnb in in uh, remote Long Island. So so they've just, you know, treated themselves to this. And you travel with them out to this space and meet them each. Uh, in a, uh, Ramon works with an extraordinarily intimate kind of omniscient voice that x-rays these characters to their souls, but also leaves them mysteriously um, intact, you know, and, and I, I want to call it like a neutron bomb narration because they're completely destroyed every time he glances at them and looks deep into their psyches and yet they go on living and they they have these uh charming and and even very kind of sympathetic desires to you know to just feel good about who they are so there they are setting up shop in their airbnb and and picking the rooms and deciding who's going to cook uh what and then there begin to be these ominous intimations of catastrophe something is not quite right. And the knock at the door comes and it's the owners of the house, or so they say, who have fled Manhattan because of a somewhat unspecified catastrophe that has overtaken New York City. It consists at least partly of a power blackout. Um, are you beginning to be reminded of one, one book of the other? There's a feeling of, <laughs> of connection here. And um, and the, the, the family, the vacationing family, the renters have to deal with letting the owners come into the space and um, they have to kind of collect their resources and figure out what to do about this thing that's going wrong, even as they're trying to figure out how much, uh, to what extent they can trust one another. And it is not at all unimportant that the vacationing family is white and the owning family who've come and knocked at the door are black. And so this book has all kinds of overwhelming plot hooks that just come so naturally out of this one simple situation. And it has, well, lots of other elements I'll, I'll be asking you about. But one of the great things that happens is that um, the animal world reintroduces itself out of the background, deer and flamingos and other kinds of animals that some that you would expect on Long Island and, and others you might not expect on Long Island, but they're, they're not part of the scenery anymore. They're sort of, they're doing something. <laughs> it's like the animals got a memo and, uh, <laughs> and you have to try to figure out what their agenda might be. It's, it's, it's a really intense book to read. And, and, um, I'm doing what I heard you do too, which is fighting spoilers because everyone should. Yeah, just I know that's well. a, that is a challenge. That is a challenge when I, I it's funny because I'm normally not someone who cares about spoilers, right? Like I don't think that what I've been saying, like you don't, if you know what happens to Emma Bovary, it doesn't change your reading experience. Right. But there's something about your book that like, there's a, 
there are elements of surprise or revelation that you want to preserve. You want to preserve that reading experience. You want to have, you want to go into it. It's fine if you go into it understanding what's written on the jacket copy, but you still want to have those moments of like, oh, here's the reward for the reading experience. Yeah. I mean, it's funny to hear you talk about my book and, to, you know, hear me talk about your book. It is plain that there is this shared interest. Why did we both write a book about the end of the world? About it all shutting down. What's been happening in the culture that you and I both were thinking about that? <laughs> well, I mean, it's also worth pointing out we're not totally alone. You can look at yeah. um, Lydia Millet's book this year yeah. and yeah. Uh, Don DeLillo's no novella. Yeah, I love uh, Lydia's as well. And and plenty of other things. Kim Stanley Robinson, the great science fiction writer, wrote an mm -hmm. extraordinary book about planetary collapse. Of course, he's doing it with that kind of um, broad uh, screen, widescreen, scientifically credible, you know, science fiction that I could never imagine being able to do myself. Whereas you and I have both mm -hmm. kind of honed in on uh, intimate experience under these circumstances. What happens to small groups of people. Um, when you're writing a book, I mean, Jonathan, like what's the starting point for you for a novel? Is it like a premise or is it a subject like the end of the world? Or is it a premise like all technology has these working or is it a character? Like what's the, what's that first moment? It really is usually kind of um, imagery, scenic imagery, iconography, tableau, things I want to see happen to characters that I've become interested in. So I, I feel like before I, I've identified what my themes are in any kind of abstract way or, or you know, like when, it, when I hear it boiled down, I, I always think, well, yeah, I guess I was writing about that. But I thought about that weird vehicle you pointed to on the cover of the, the, the book. And I thought about um, it crossing the country and passing through different landscapes and it being piloted by this abhorrent, ridiculous character who I, who I was inventing. And I was like, I'm, I want to figure that out. That's interesting. Where so the image for you, like the starting image for you was the, was the machine itself? The machine and the town. You know, I guess this book, this book has a, a really extreme disparity in it because the, the small village in Maine, by putting it into this, catastrophe I call the the arrest, I've really only exaggerated some of the aspects of small town life in coastal Maine, yeah. which is a, yeah. a part of life I sometimes get to participate in um, when I when I go there, which is that it's very rooted and very connected to the past. And there are families that have lived one generation after the next on the same road. And they, you know, that tumble down stone wall made out of field stones, they know that their great, great grandfather was the one who plowed those field stones out and made the wall. And, um, and a lot of people, there are you know, like genius organic farm farmers who, who feed lots of people there, but a lot of other people also have some amount of garden and almost everyone has a dug well. So it's also kind of like a prepper's paradise. It's a place where when you're there, you can't help thinking, you know, maybe everything could collapse and I would be fine here and nothing would change that much. Yeah. So yeah. I was just taking elements that kind of are that are part of that atmosphere and and exaggerating them. And that is to say that you know the, your internet might not work that well there, and it might not matter as much. You're just separated from other things. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like it's like then, part of the character of that place too, right? That that yeah. sort of Yankee independence, right? Like. 
there's like a pride and a there's a libertarianism almost right like and that's sort of your interest in that place and it's funny to hear you talk about it with such like firsthand experience and also like this sense of admiration because i think that i always think of brooklyn where i am right yeah. now when i'm thinking of your work <laughs> and so is it a shift in your ideal for what you wanted to write about or like does it reflect a change in you like is it just the interest of an artist at a different age? Like, what is it about this, this, mm -hmm. like that place versus the place where I am talking to you from right now? Yeah. Well, yeah, I know. I, I sort of, I mean, I grew up in Brooklyn and I'm, I, at a glance, I sound and look and act like someone who's probably st still there or still there in their, in their <laughs> mind. And this happens to me in California all the time that people just ID me instantly. Cause I, you know, I've, I've lived now in Southern California for a decade and I write about yeah. other places, but I still yeah. accept that this is my, you know, um, <laughs> it's sort of brand, branded on my forehead. It's your lot. Yeah. And, but, you know, going to new England as a kid, my mother, let's back up one generation. My mother was a fresh air fund kid and she was a, mm. a, you know, a city kid from Queens who didn't know what the countryside was like. And then was literally uh, kind of, granted this miraculous connection to a family in, in Vermont, in St. Johnsbury. And when I was young, uh, for various reasons, my father was from the Midwest. So we were a New York family, but we had a car and we did go places sometimes. But I still was very much a product of the marvelous claustrophobia of, of an urban neighborhood. And I idealized these jaunts we would take to Vermont or Maine or, or the Catskills. So that landscape was always the image of like, I don't know what you call it, like the antidote <laughs> yeah. to being from New York was you wanted to go to the country and, you know, or you might go to a summer camp and it might be just two weeks of the year. But so it isn't that new for me to, to like it there and to think of it as um, charged. But, you know, what's funny is in this book, Ruman, I actually realized when I created the the descriptions of the towns and the way you cross from one to the other and it's, you know, uh, there are invisible boundaries. It's like it's mm -hmm. the way people live here. I was really just transposing what I know about neighborhoods. It's really still Carroll Gardens, right. Cobble Hill, and Boreham Hill. It's like, oh, yeah. you know, if you're a kid and you cross Smith Street, everything changes. <laughs> and that's how I read right. that landscape yeah. up, up in Maine was the little towns were like neighborhoods in Brooklyn for me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's this awareness of, the geography and, and like I said, the geography informs the character of the experiment of the community that is established in this part of the country that you're writing about in this post arrest universe. It's kind of like a, I mean, it reminded me of like the, it reminded me of um, Newhart, right? Like the sort of like the great New England ideal of like this community of eccentrics and this beautiful yeah. space, like all talking about their business. Um, and it, but it's funny to hear you talk about that because that's, that is what it is like to live in a big city in many of the same ways. Like, yeah. you know, these, these understood boundaries, these tacit boundaries and these sort of odd characters gathered together. Um, so now yeah. I need to turn the tables. Tell us about the uh, origin image. Um, what was the moment when you saw this book before you? What form did it take when you were anticipating it or discovering it? I mean, just as you're describing an intimate relationship to 
what we could just sort of broadly call the country from your childhood, from your mother's childhood, like the notion of sort of like a, an escape from urban life. This book began, like I was on a vacation in a house exactly like the one I'm describing. I was, we rented an Airbnb. I improved the Airbnb in fiction because that is what fiction allows you to do. Um, but, you know, we rented an Airbnb that was absolutely beautiful in a part of Long Island that is not very cool. It is not a place where you would go to buy like a Masoni blanket and a scented candle. It's not that kind of new, uh, Long Island. Um, but we had this beautiful home for a week. And I knew that I wanted to write about that experience of what it's like to be in this place that doesn't exactly belong to you. But I wanted to locate in the domestic something much bigger. And I think that, I mean, what I usually say, and I, I think this is true, is that like the domestic, when deployed as a literary term, implies like something miniature or small or feminized or less important. Um, and the big, broad, sweeping book like The Corrections and Freedom, not to, I don't mean to unfairly use Jonathan Franzen, but he's a great example of this. Those books strike me as fundamentally domestic novels as well, especially Freedom, which is one of the best books about an American family I've read in the last two decades. You know, that the section about the mom in Freedom is just astonishing to me, but it's talked about as social because of the sex of the author and because of the under, like this relationship between importance and heft. But I think that the domestic can show you a lot. And I wanted to push right through the literal house itself into the larger world and talk about the politics of the moment, the very pressing issue of the climate, which I think hangs over both of our books, um, this very bizarre and broken relationship we have to technology, which is again, something I think our books really, really share in common, um, and to try and interrogate them at, at, at however I could. And so that was the attempt. And yeah. I think it, that's where it began, like just being in that place. You know, as someone who lives in Brooklyn, it's very, it's very satisfying to go to a house that doesn't belong to you, that has a swimming pool and just be like, ah, oh, I can, I can breathe. I can, you know, see the stars. Yeah. I can see deer and I can feel that weird discomfort that I feel when I'm in the country of just being like, oh, I'm an animal and I don't actually really know how to be an animal anymore because I can't even tell what the weather's like without looking at my phone, you know? <laughs> yeah. So this thing. It's in both of our books, it's like the day you punch at it and it won't give you anything. Yeah. That mm. feeling of being restored in your, as you say, in your bodily self, like, oh, yeah. I have to use my senses. I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna transport through this tiny little window into other uh, realities all the time. I'm not gonna escape from the dinner conversation by like holding it. <laughs> below the level of the table tonight because it's not working oh no like the the arrest as a ver as, as a noun for the scenario you're describing is so it's so benign right it's so i don't know it, there, it almost has like a beauty to it the idea of like this the suspension of all technology but of course and your book does engage with the ways in which it would be horrific and but for a lot of the book, I was like, oh, this really sounds wonderful until, and I'll tell you what, what felt more complicated to me was the coffee. So when the car arrives, when the machine arrives and among the, the fittings of this particular astonishing car that Troutman is driving across the country is that it has a coffee maker. 
And I was thinking like, oh yeah, if we existed in some bucolic paradise of like organic carrots and like labor, my husband would have murdered me without coffee, right? Like it would have, it would have been a bloodbath, you know, it would have been like a, there's no way. And so even if your book is sort of like talking about this, there's almost an optimism to that perspective that like this disruption in the society we know might, might be a liberation, but it reminded me of how connected I am to this broken system that we actually live in. Like I couldn't well, live without coffee. And I, you know, our coffee is, is, is made for us by people who are largely very far away too. I mean, a lot yeah. of things are globalized and mediated, you know, we, we might at a glance oppose, you know, um, you know, our, our running shoe and our, and our Netflix, yeah. but they're both, uh, caught up in these invisible networks. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, um, yeah, when things become totally localized, I think there's a lot of idealization. I mean, I, one of the things I was chasing with this book was, you know, the feeling that a lot of people in fiction destroy the world because it would feel a lot better <laughs> that it's it's actually kind of consult those are consoling fictions rehearsals of some kind of restoration or purity that might be a itself yeah. a very sus suspect impulse um yeah when i was a kid there was a day when i was listening to wbai and alan watts was doing one of his alan watts lectures and i i was transfixed because he's so charismatic and weird and, and he said he, he said something that startled me and I, I thought about it forever, which was that it's very bad to listen to the news and learn about faraway disasters. You shouldn't do this, that this is a, like a, a really big mistake that, that contemporary life was making to, to learn about the flood or the tsunami or the famine. And I thought this is like cut, it seemed to fly in the face of the idea of a global empathic, compassionate, mm -hmm. you know, uh, recognizing of, of our, connectedness and, and inter interreliant humanity. But he was sort of saying, all you can do is uh, fail to take care of things that are actually under your, under your yeah. care, things that are immediate, yeah. and right? Yeah. For you. And so learning about these distant things mostly just paralyzes you. Now, it's not like I have an, a recommendation <laughs> out of this <laughs> for myself or anyone else, but I, I'm, I, I've thought about it at some level, this idea of the problem of our global consciousness and, and our proximity issues, like what's in front of you to take care of, as opposed to the things that you want to take care of that are out, out of your grasp. And I mean, we're all enmeshed in this in a way that's really uh, confusing because we have such access, such total access to remote realities. Yeah, and we have this disbelief that like, using a reusable metal straw instead of the disposable plastic straw will actually affect some, you know, it will do something that we have this particular power in the world. It's more complicated than that, you know? And you're, you're guaranteed to be that. getting it wrong. You know, you'll learn later that yeah. the reusable metal straw was made maybe by somebody <laughs> enslaved somewhere. Right. You know, right. you never, you're right. never getting it right. But I mean, it was like when I when I felt so virtuous eating quinoa at one point, and then I was informed that right. that was destroying yeah. an entire society. But um, yeah. <laughs> so in both of our books, we fool around with the question of 
you know, we make a thought experiment of the reduction of the, the, the narrowing of what you can learn about remote situations. The characters in both our stories are sure that there's great suffering going on at this moment because of what, what they're seeing in front of them, but they can't confirm it, let alone affect it. I mean, one of the things I was interested in in, in my book was what happens if you don't even know whether your parents who don't live where you live are still alive or yeah. not. Um, yeah. And, um, and you, you do the same thing. Your, your characters are really uh, haunted by the things you can be certain of, but you can't confirm that are happening globally. Yeah. It's, it's terrifying. It's really terrifying. The, the notion of your world sort of shrinking down in this way is really scary. And I think in my book, you know, the, the book uses the sort of the language or conventions of thriller or horror because I find that really horrifying. And what's so striking about the arrest to me is that as with so much of your work, it uses this sort of twist of, uh, humor isn't exactly the right word, but like there's a, neither is levity, but like there's a way in which um, the perspective on on the arrest, and you hear it even in the title, right? Even in that, in, even in you, the use of that particular noun to describe these conditions, it's not like the reckoning, right? Or you know, the silencing. It's not like yeah. a it's not like a terrifying Stephen King kind of moment. It's something more almost benign, but there's a lot of emotional stuff hidden beneath that, and that's what the book plays out is this sort of like the connection between these two people that is more profound and has like a longer history. Do you think your book is funny? I hope it's funny, but I always feel <laughs> cursed when I say things like that because it's such a terrible thing to explain or de or defend, you know, when people are like, um, I mean, I think, I actually think almost all of my books are comedies. And, and yet, I mean, I think there are other things as well. They're doing other things as well, but for often sure, the explanation yeah. for something puzzling is one I feel tongue tied about saying, which is, oh, that part, I was just trying to be funny, you know? Um, and I think I, I see the, the, um, the, the absurdity in terror and I, I see the absurdity in a lot of situations and uh, try to under, underline it. But also, you know, you remind me of something that I, that I, I think about what I do after all this time is that I'm interested in the, yeah, the something less grandiose than the reckoning. You know, I mean, these characters yeah. at one point, they make fun of the book, The Road, for being so yeah. biblical and, yeah. and, and for being such a, a, a moral crosshairs. And the thing is, a yeah. lot of the time, we don't end up in the moral crosshairs. We end up looking at them from a side angle and wondering whether we should be in them. You know, like the way <laughs> when the on onset of this experience that we're in, which is so overwhelming and so profound and, and so dark and involves so much loss for so many people, but it also yeah. seemed to yeah. involve for quite a lot of people trying to find someone with a perfect sourdough starter, you know? Yeah. And uh, this, this sense of uh, the absurdity or the marginality of our experience to what we feel is most important, you know, the, the way we're always to one side of the, the reckoning, you know? Yeah. And actually maybe the reckoning is half halfway, just an inconvenience. It's like, oh, this is such a drag. The reckoning is going on and I was meaning to do this other thing. <laughs> 
I'm missing it. I'm stuck in this ridiculous sideshow. I'm missing the moral. Maybe reckoning. I should go over there and beat him the reckoning, but I didn't. I just didn't. That's not on my schedule for today. But I have to say, though, with respect to like what whether your books are comic or not, I think what you're talking about actually has less to do with the writing and you, and more to do with the experience of being a reader, which is that it's terrifying to go into a book and know and try to figure out whether or not you're allowed to laugh. Uh-huh. And I think a lot of readers assume that like, they assume like this connection between like this performance of, you know, deep significance, like the road, which I like the road, but I do understand. I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. This is like <laughs> the silliness of it. And that like the, the, the notion that like anything that did make you chuckle or did give you the relief of a laugh couldn't be as grave or as significant. Um, but what I loved about the arrest, which I read on vacation with my family, like, it, so I read it, I experienced it in a moment of like relief in my own life. And I, and I found it really funny. That's great. I love that. Well, I mean, one, one way we could relate our books is it's like your book is the first day of the arrest. Mm-hmm. It's what it was like mm-hmm. in that house in Long Island on the day my book yeah. began. And then five years later, my idiot characters are, are in the, you know, the foreground. <laughs> But um, so here's what I here's what I want to do because I want to again turn the tables. So your book comes on strong, as you said, with a kind of classical horror motif. You know, it's like the home invasion, the strangers, and this reminds me of very easily of all kinds of recent versions of those archetypes. Uh, You know, you have it in um, a lot of the most deservedly popular and profound horror films that have come along recently is the, yeah. the almost the purification of this archetype of the family in a home and what's coming to the door, you know, yeah. the sense of disturbance in your characters and how yeah. it does become very comic and, and, you know, and also the, the shame and embarrassment, the, the drive to go get help that ends up with just getting lost because you have no GPS and the guy comes back and he, he won't acknowledge that he didn't get anywhere. Um, <laughs> he just sort of parked by the side of the road and had a smoke. But so yeah. the same, same question for you, Roman. Do you think of this as a comic novel, among other things? I do. Yeah, I do. I do. I hope it is. I hope that people have the experience of laughing at these characters and laughing at the absurdity of the situation. I think horror, horror as a genre tends to walk on a line of like the gross out or the absurd or the ridiculous. And there's a gesture at the end where someone is like vomiting and it's talking about like the color of his vomit. And I thought that was so funny. Like I just, at a certain point I was like, everything that's happening is so terrifying that I don't know what to do but laugh. Yeah. I I don't want to undersell how scary your book is. It actually has one of the images I'm not going to, spoil here because the book is too new there's a thing in it that disturbed me very deeply i'll tell you afterwards in the green room i mean you might know yeah. what it is <laughs> I, I think I, I mean i think that i think what you're talking about is that there are certain conventions of narrative that are codified for a reason that there there are they carry like a primal significance um 
the reason that horror or science fiction develops conventions is because they're really they're really efficient and they work really well. And so even if you don't watch horror films or read novels of horror, you recognize them. You know that when there's a group of people trapped and one person wanders away, nothing good is going to happen. And it's so satisfying to watch those things happen. And I feel like you are a writer who is really associated with this kind of understanding of the conventions of a certain kind of storytelling and then adapting those conventions or, you know, not not even adapting them, but kind of like manipulating them to a different end. Arousing the expectations in order yeah. to create a kind of anxiety about the fact that you're not necessarily going to see them play out the way, the way they're meant to. Um, bringing yeah. the, bringing the, the framework into, into the space so that, as you say, people know how these stories are meant to work uh, semi-consciously. They've absorbed them from yeah, all exactly. kinds of archetypal exactly. uh, examples. Well, you you really cross a line in your book. You 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 made a thing happen to a person that that upset me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I did violate I did violate one of the rules of of those conventions, but but so did you actually because I sort of. I thought the arrest was going to function a certain way. And again, I don't want to spoil what happens and I'm sort of trying to think of like how to talk about it. But what we understand over the course of the book is the relationship between this guy who is known as the journeyman inside this post-arrest universe and this man who is driving cross-country to meet him. And the nature of that relationship has to do with movies. And so I want to ask you as a writer, your interest in the cinema as as a form, as a as a a cultural a form of cultural expression, like why in a book about the end of our entire way of life are you writing about Hollywood? Like, what is the what's the appeal for you yeah. there? That's that. Thank you. That's a really great question. I mean, I I think that one of the things that I, I mean, so I live in California now. One of the things that I sometimes explain to people is that I are already always lived in. California because I grew up watching the late show and that, you know, the ideological power that's generated from this, this engine of, of storytelling and persuasion and, and intoxicating imagery. It's a place that I can't ever exit from in my life. And mostly I feel like that's okay. That's fun, but it's also a kind of nightmare or a hall of mirrors. Um, and I think in this story where I reduced so many things out of the atmosphere of contemporary life, you know, these characters are experiencing a significant reduction in their story drunkenness. They're not right. Netflixing and chilling anymore. Right. And then, and then it comes barreling back into their space. Yeah. And this raises yeah. all kinds of questions about like, was it actually okay? Or maybe what, you know, was it part of the problem? And, and Journeyman is complicit with it. He was a, an enabler of stories. You know, he, he wasn't the driver, <laughs> but he might be the co-pilot, you know? Mm. And so the question is like, if stories were part of the problem, what do you do if you were a storyteller? I mean, a, 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 little, a little piece of this book comes out of the yeah. old joke that I used to have with myself. You know, I grew up in an artist's family and I've never really been capable of doing anything. Uh, you know, I couldn't build a fire without a blowtorch. 
And, um, <laughs> but I was, you always think, oh, but in the apocalypse, they'll need me. I'll be the storyteller. I'll be the one, you know, keeping the right. legends alive. <laughs> right. But what if they don't want that anymore? They're like, that's not, yeah. you're not invited as the storyteller. You can carry the water back and forth from the, you know, we might have you <laughs> clean, clean up this, this muddy area over here, but we don't want your stories. Do you think though, as an artist, as a human being, that that impulse towards story is fundamental? Like, do you see Hollywood as just an expression of this fundamental animal desire to sit around the campfire and tell one another stories? Like that there's something in our wiring that requires that? Or do you actually think yeah, that- I think that it's mixed up in consciousness in a very like Reese's yeah. peanut butter cup way that you just, you can't yeah. get it out. It's just a big muddle because we were made of stories in a way. But what yeah. we what we do with our sense input is almost immediately a kind of storytelling. There's a million things I want to talk, ask you and 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 say about your book. I also know that we have a unique chance to have some audience questions. Oh in. yes, it's time. Uh, let's take our yes. We should, let's ask we should take a few, that, right? Yeah. But it's so great talking with you about about. Yeah. No. Likewise. Clearly, we could yeah. just keep going for like another hour. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Well, let's get a couple of other voices in here. Hi, I think we all could listen to you for hours and hours. This has been really great, um, but we do have questions rolling in. So Adam asks about point of view. Both of these books are third person. And there's a question about how you came to land that point of view. Uh, I'll, I'll, sure. I'll just say this. This is a great example for listening to your uh, editors. I wrote this book in the third person to make the reader feel like they were participating in the same circumstances the characters are. And my editor said to me, it's annoying. The reader needs to know more than the characters know. And I had to crack how to do that. And the realization was to just have the book tell you. And so I introduced a different perspective into the book, which is what I think of as the voice of God, who is able to speak directly to the characters and liberate like tell the reader something that the writers don't, that the, that the characters don't know. And um, so it's third person, but it is, has this like other device inside of it. But um, I actually already had a preview of Jonathan's answer to this question and it's a really good one. So I'm going to let <laughs> okay. him take it. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you in a second, but first of all, I have to, I have to, um, if I can find it really quickly, I want to, I mean, Ruman's version of omniscience, that voice of God is so great in this book. Maybe because it was introduced after you'd been doing, I guess I think like so. Close, yeah. close third, yeah. because the, the 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 sentences switch from voice of God telling you things that the characters would never think about themselves to the things that they are thinking about themselves really rapidly and freely, yeah. and so you get these yeah. incredible moments. Like, um, so the one of the main characters is thinking about. Uh, someone who works under her, <laughs> uh, whose name is Jocelyn. And, she, and she's thinking, Jocelyn had been born in South Carolina. Uh, of Jocelyn of Korean parentage had been born in South Carolina. And Amanda continued to feel that the woman's mealy-mouthed accent was incongruous. This was so racist, she could never admit it to anyone. <laughs> and it, this, this is that neutron bomb voice of yours, Ramon, where you just level the character and yet they get to go on walking around and even commanding our interest and sympathy. It's kind of miraculous voice. Oh, so thank you. Thank you. The arrest has this um, uh, weird piece of compositional history. I wrote it in first person. 
And I was sure that that was the, I was, I had no doubt that that was how this book was going to work. It, 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 it conformed in my projection to, uh, it was modeled loosely on the way I'd use first person in another book called Chronic City, where there was this very garrulous, but dense first person voice, somebody who could express a lot and tell you a lot about a lot of impressions of things, but just didn't get it at the heart of the book was totally missing the, the main point. And I thought that's the structure that I'm using again. And I wrote it that way. And um, it was, I think the character was way uh, too digressive and irritating and garrulous. And I realized that actually I wanted the, the tableau, the imagery and the situations to, to, to win out and not be constantly shrouded by this chatty, irritating narrator. And so I, re I recast the entire book in third person, but it was the, it was the last revision. It was what I did at the, at the, at the 11th hour. So the book changed yeah. in this one really dramatic way. Uh, yeah. With point of view. Lucky question. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, Liz has a question. She wants to know for each of you, what was one of your favorite parts of your novel to write? And maybe we'll start with Jonathan this time, just to sure. keep it spicy. Well, um, this was a joyful uh, novel for me to write. It, it it came, and I and despite this big reframing from from first to third person, I never felt thrown out of this book. You know, I was always like, I'm I'm digging it. I'm getting it. I'm doing what I want to do with this one, and it just felt really uh, uh, terrific. And there was a, a, and I'm not, I'm going to avoid my own spoiler now. There was a scene I wanted to write. And this has driven a few books where I have an image towards the very end of the book that I just want to see. I want to see it done. And I was mm -hmm. like, but I don't let myself go ahead and write it ahead. Like I, the desire to get there drives the entire experience. So for two years, I was waiting to make this thing. And it's very, it's a very physical, peculiar thing. Like something moves into a different space in a way that I hope the reader can't have expected, but is very interested. No, in uh, let me just tell you that there's no way the reader could expect how this book ends. So don't worry, mission accomplished on that level. Yeah. So I just, you know, the day I finally get to do it, it's like, you know, it's like you've been staring at a, a corner of your ceiling that wasn't painted. And then one day you get out the paint that's the right color and you look right. at it. <laughs> Ah, look at that. I, I do like that your reward is like actually just more work. Like more work for labor. Awesome. <laughs> that's that's yeah. always, that's what writing is. Um, I had a lot of fun when, I guess, I mentioned before that it was my editor who told me that there was this information gap that needed to be filled in between the characters and the reader. And I, when I solved that problem, when I came up with this voice and I got to deploy all of these details, I had a lot of fun thinking about the things that I find most terrifying. And almost, it was almost like an act of exorcism to think them through and then bake them into the book. So when I was a kid, when I was a kid, there was a famous case, and I'm going to forget the woman's name now, um, of a woman, a mother who drowned her children in the bathtub, um, which yeah. terrified me as a child, terrifies me to this day. Um, I am terrified of being trapped in an elevator. 
Uh, I am terrified of plane crashes. I'm terrified of like being trapped in a place and having a building collapse on me. And all of these details appear in the book and they're all very tiny, but they're, it's like, I just got to like cast them out of my brain and into the reader's brain. So I, I had a lot of fun doing that. Sadistic. Like that it, sounds, it sounds sadistic when I say it, you know? <laughs> well, it also sounds like you got to like make notes and comments on your own book like by going back into the second well, yeah second a little bit yeah it's like i annotated it yeah, yeah i think that's right yeah i actually really enjoy that um claire wants to know um how class figures into your idea of overarch of the overarching disasters in your book so, so if you could each talk about that a little bit because i think it does play a big part um and maybe we'll start with jonathan this time to change it up yeah well I try to think my hardest to think about class every time I, I write. And I, as you know, Roman was reminding me, I'm a stranger in the space of this book. You know, the, the towns in, in Maine where I approximately set this book, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm from away. <laughs> like not understanding them is part of my, deep situation uh, when I live there and, and now when I've written about it. And I think it's a study because I think that the kind of um, the integrity of that community uh, has very powerful belief systems about class. And there are some really prominent things that anyone can notice that like rich people from Boston and New York have houses and People who live in the towns take care of the houses for them and the boats. And those people come and for like two weeks, they use the houses and the boats. Well, so that's an easy, you know, that's fish in a barrel. But what about everyone in between, which is, you know, my situation and the situation of like a lot of people that I really am interested in and responsive to and spend time with who maybe came and made a claim on that space because they wanted to make an organic farm, you know, at some point in the seventies. And now they're sort of, they're neither nor they've, yeah. they've made a connection that isn't recognizable to the five generations in the same farmhouse family and is totally consternating or peculiar or, you know, or maybe they make a really great tomato. So they're like an asset to the people <laughs> who come for two weeks with the boat in the house, but they're, they're not, class fixed. They're, they're shapeshifters in a certain way. And I think, of course, this is something that I'm fated to write about again and again, whether I'm writing about urban spaces or, or, um, or, or, or other spaces, it, it's the problem of uh, identifying with things that you're, that are not exactly uh, your possession, and then accidentally gentrifying them. You know, this is a really uncomfortable space to be in, but it's something I'm I'm very uh, helplessly involved in thinking about. Yeah, I'm similarly very interested in that material and that particular. What interests me is my own participation in the system as I understand it, and so when I am writing without mercy about these aspirational middle-class white people, 
I am also writing about myself, right? When I'm writing about the things they buy at the grocery store as the story of who they tell themselves they are, I'm doing that with a sense of recognition because I understand my own participation in this system. And I understand how ridiculous it is and how class is such a, like, it's like this myth that we keep telling ourselves about who we are, you know? And I find it really fun to think about and play with. I want to end by, we've been ending a few of the discussions this way. It's it's been really nice Um, by asking each of y'all, you know, it's, it's been like a time to put it mildly lately um, and how <laughs> it's like a week is a year and a day is a decade. Like, I don't know yeah. um, how you've been like, what is maybe one way that you've been finding joy this week or like something that has comforted you or just like made you happy? Um, maybe we could start with Jonathan. Mm. Well, you know, I do really count on, um, on, cooking and eating. Um, and then, you know, that forces you to, to, to notice the other side, which is getting on the treadmill. And, uh, so, you know, I think one of the things that's so, that's so interesting about this whole experience is the way it's double, you know, we've been, uh, re centered in our homes and our bodies and our families. I mean, I spend enormous amounts of time with, my kids in a way that I don't mean I neglected them before, but there's just a difference. I have to be sometimes the teacher and sometimes the playmate in a way that, you know, mostly really wouldn't be the case, even for the 10 year old, certainly for the 13 year old who would have dismissed me from his life by now, but too bad. He doesn't, he doesn't get to. Um, and, and, You're stuck. Uh, yeah. So but we've been, we've been, you know, centered in, 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 in these things and it's very tempting if we're not in, you know, I mean, it's always cr- crucial to note that some people are in, in are, are in free fall right now. They're suffering. Yeah. But if you're lucky enough to, to be in a home and know where the food comes from, and I'm, I'm that lucky, then being placed back and, you know, take, I mean, I, I'm, after we're done tonight, I'm going to, I'm going to cook this fish I bought and the rest of what I put on it is uh, herbs from the garden, which would not, you know, I used to be a big restaurant person, but these I'll be eating things I grew. That's kind of cool. But then again, here we are, look at us, you know, I'm in Portland too. What's going on? I was in Texas this afternoon. (laughs) So we've, we've had the whole experience of pandemic is, is one thing and it's total opposite. We've been all, yeah completely translated out into our phones and into systems that we'd never even heard of like zoom. And what's this one called vmix call? You know, I don't even know what. (laughs) So uh, so how can a thing be so profoundly itself and it's opposite, but I'm, I'm also, I'm seeing people remotely. I mean, I'm spending this time with Ramon that I might, you know, yeah. Otherwise I I might not have gotten to actual Portland this year. I mean, I just, yeah. So it's weird. Uh, there are there are covert pleasures along with all of the uh, forms of uh, estra- cognitive and, and emotional estrangement, and and uh, you know, as well as awareness of, yeah. of real suffering. It's a on. strange. It is a strange, strange moment. It's a strange, strange moment. I mean, I was telling both of you before we started recording that I um, I'm teaching this semester, and I'm teaching undergrads at Pace and at Columbia. And 
I have found it like kind of a wonderful joy to spend time with these. There's a particular like kind of magic that happens in the seminar room, and I wish that we were in that seminar room. But when I see these, I, I call them kids, which is not generous because they are young adults. But when I see these kids on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, I am momentarily lifted out of thinking about doing sixth grade math with my sixth grader or the fact that I have to like figure out if I'm going to make lasagna tomorrow or whatever. Like I'm momentarily outside of those concerns and I'm thinking about these young people and thinking about what gets them excited. And they're working so hard from their like girlhood bedrooms under these terrible circumstances, paying for these very expensive educations. They're not getting the full experience of and forcing these young readers to talk about, the writers I love, like Brian Washington or Laurie Moore or Samantha Hunt. Like I, I gave these kids Brian Washington's lot to read this week and I could see their physical responses to this book. I could see the extent to which it had changed their way of thinking about what, what was possible for them as artists. Samantha Hunt that had exactly the same effect on them. And it, that is such a gift to be able to do that and to be able to watch a different reader respond to this text. And so that's been my joy. I've really, really enjoyed that experience. This It's funny because I find so much joy in teaching these kids about the contemporary short story. And I find almost no joy in teaching my own children about third grade and sixth grade math, but maybe that's just my own failure as a parent. But I think you have to, like Jonathan said, you, we're so lucky in this moment. We're so lucky. This government has given working people $600 in the last nine months. Like we are such lucky people. And so you have to just seize the opportunity to take joy wherever you can find it. I think, I think it feels like almost a rebellion, you know, like that's that. a great answer. Ramon. It's, and it's the case for me as well, that my students, my college students have been extraordinary and in, and in so many different circumstances that they've been thrust into yeah. as they were pushed away from their college life. Uh, they've rallied and come to these occasions of, the teaching and brought so much to it. It's really something. That was a conversation between Jonathan Letham and Rahman Alam from the 2020 Portland Book Festival. The 2021 Portland Book Festival lineup has just been announced. The festival will take place from November 8th to the 13th online, on the radio, and in person. For more information about the author lineup and schedule, visit literary-arts.org. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Join us next time for The Archive Project, a literary arts production in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more from The Archive Project, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Support for The Archive Project is provided by Cole Hahn, on a mission to fuel your big ideas. More at kolhan.com. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori for radio and podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to Joe T. Roy and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. The show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.